Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, all around the American Shoreline, uh, government agencies, local elected leaders, and most importantly, I think in many areas, nonprofit organizations work very hard to protect, restore, and sustain critical coastal resources and riverine resources, which are connected, of course, and so critical to our coastal environments. Um, there are a couple ways, Tyler, that this is generally approached. I mean, in general, broad terms, uh, there's the command and control universe of coastal resource management, which involves the permitting and rules and the management of private sector activities. And that's a really important uh, component of coastal land and water protection. Uh, the other way really is to use the market forces and to use uh, the private sector and the nonprofit sector uh, to acquire and manage in critical coastal lands and resource areas. And that's going to be the focus of our show today, Tyler. We are going to be talking about coastal land trusts and their role and responsibilities and contributions on the American shoreline. I think it's going to be really cool. Absolutely will be and has huge ramifications everywhere along the American shoreline. These are, I think, some of the most impactful and effective grassroots groups mm -hmm. that bring local communities to the shoreline, to the estuary, to the river and engage them, educate them, pick up trash, restore dunes, whatever it is. Uh, this is where a lot of the impactful work occurs. It's at the community level, and boy, I'm really excited to look at it. And Peter, we've got a great like sample yeah. that we're gonna use to study this. And we've got a great uh, slate of guests within this kind of sample region that are gonna tell us all about it. Indeed, uh, uh, listeners are out there. We're gonna take you to Puget Sound, particularly an area called the South Sound down by Olympia, Washington. Uh, to focus on the role of land trusts in this region of Puget Sound, absolutely spectacular area. Joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Craig Partridge, a third generation Western Washington native, uh, the former president of the Capitol, board president of the Capitol Land Trust, it is called, an organization headquartered here in Olympia, Washington. He was 32 years with the Washington Department of Natural Resources, Tyler, and helped manage the state's 2.5 million acres of submerged lands. Uh, also joining us in this panel is going to be David Winter. He is the executive director of the Capital Land Trust and has been since 2018. He is an Olympia native and formerly uh, worked very closely with REI, the great outdoor recreation supply company. And finally, Jeanette Dorner is the executive director of the Nisqually Land Trust. She has been working for more than 25 years on protecting and restoring the Nisqually River and its delta in uh, Puget Sound. She was the salmon program, uh, the salmon recovery program manager for the Nisqually tribe for more than a decade. And she is a native of the Nisqually watershed, having grown up on Muck Creek, a tributary of the Nisqually. So we've got a great panel of professionals who have been involved for decades in, in uh, coastal and ocean uh, resource management through the lens of land trust, Tyler. Going to be a great show. 
land trusts and also kind of the the bridge between that that land trusts play between local state governments planning and that local community those local uh resources that we all love and want to see preserved and uh taken care of so uh, i think that this is one of those shows peter that is going to resonate around the american shoreline we all have an organization like this near us and i think we're going to learn a lot about our close by organizations by learning about the, these organizations up in the puget sound and i have to say i'm excited to learn a little bit about the puget sound generally uh, but first let's have a quick word from our sponsors Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, Craig and Dave and Jeanette, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast and taking time out of your busy lives to explain uh, your world to our listeners. Thank you very much. You bet. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Appreciate the invitation. We really appreciate it. And I'd like to start with Craig Partridge, uh, who worked as the uh, with the Washington Department of Natural Resources, I said in the intro, for 32 years on submerged land management in the state, and to provide a kind of a geographic and historical overview of this region of the South Sound, it's called, of Puget Sound. Craig, introduce our audience around the country and around the world to Puget Sound in this region of the Sound. Be happy to, Peter. So as you said, we're down here in the South Sound, but Puget Sound as a whole, uh, particularly if you include the uh, related inland waters, uh, we also call that the U.S. portion of the Salish Sea. Uh, which also includes the uh, Canadian uh, portion and the Straits of Georgia. But the, the U.S. part of that, the larger Puget Sound area, is a, has a very convoluted shoreline. And in fact, uh, there are in that Puget Sound area 2,500 miles of shoreline. Uh, and that's almost twice as much as the entire 
outer Pacific coast of Washington, Oregon, and California. So uh, we like our shorelines here. Um, the South Sound, where we are, which is the area extending south uh, of the Seattle-Tacoma urban core, is kind of a series of long, narrow inlets radiating out from uh, the central Puget Sound, like fingers radiating out from a hand. Um, the palm of that hand we call the Nisqually Reach, where the largest river in the area, the Nisqually River, comes in and forms a large delta. But then in those inlets, there's a whole lot of embayments and pocket estuaries and shallow intertidal areas. Uh, so it's a pretty complex uh, ecosystem. There's only in South Sound one significant uh, urban area. That's the Olympia, Lacey, Tumwater, three towns, uh, metro area of uh, a little under 300,000 population, and it sits at the head of Bud Inlet, which is the southernmost extension of Puget Sound. And there's a small commercial port uh, here in Olympia as well. There's a smaller town of Shelton uh, at the head of a, a more remote inlet. Uh, but the rest of uh, the shoreline down here is mostly rural residential land use. And the main economic activity uh, on the shoreline and, and the waters is shellfish harvest and culture and recreation. So uh, a, little, uh, a little history um, that your listeners might be interested in. Uh, in Washington state, al although the state uh, exerted ownership of, the, of all the submerged lands at statehood, uh, most of the tidelands around Puget Sound were sold by the state into private ownership uh, over the decades until a legislated freeze on that uh, happened in 1971. Uh, despite that, shoreline protection has been a, a major local priority for years and years here, including uh, citizens uh, successfully defeated a proposal for a major export terminal in the 1970s that was going to be uh, constructed right next to the undeveloped Nisqually River Delta. Um, and that river delta then became a national wildlife refuge in 1974. Also uh, here, the citizens persuaded the legislature to pass a state Shoreline Management Act, you mentioned the regulatory side of things, that was passed in 1971. It was, I believe, uh, one of the first of its kind in the country, and it preceded the Coastal Zone Management Act by one year. Um, and despite that history of selling off uh, the state-owned tidelands, the state is now one of the most assertive in the country in managing uh, the remaining state-owned submerged lands, the, the tidelands that remain, and then everything below low water. So, Craig, continuing this history forward, uh, when do we see communities start banding together and creating land trusts kind of in this historical line that you're painting? Well, the, the, uh, I think both the uh, Capital Land Trust and the Nisqually Land Trust are between 20 and 30 years old. So uh, there, there, is, there is some history there. 
there's a there's a mosaic of of protected jurisdictions around the South Sound, um, you know, from the the 4,500-acre Billy Frank Jr. Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, and just adjacent to that is 15,000 acres of a state Nisqually Reach Aquatic Reserve. But it, there are also a lot of small city and county parks uh, along the shoreline. Uh, there's a variety of state uh, protected areas. Uh, there are there is some uh, shoreline ownership by local uh, Native American tribes. Uh, there's some ownership by local colleges, and there's some ownership by uh, these two local land trusts. And so there is a pretty rich history. Uh, stretching back multiple decades of citizens, uh, both on the regulatory side and the non-regulatory side, uh, banding together to protect this uh, shoreline resource that people care about so deeply here. Jeanette, welcome. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. I'd like to start with you if I could. Uh, when I arrived in Olympia in July, one of the first things my wife and I did was we found our way over to the Nisqually River uh, uh, Nature Center and uh, had a chance to kayak in the Nisqually River Delta. And I was stunned at this incredibly beautiful river delta. Uh, there were harbor seals lounging on uh, marsh uh, outcrops and marsh uh, banks. There were uh, dozens of blue herons, and we saw otters. It was that we saw bald eagles, and it was. And I was, and in the background, as we were kayaking, we could hear Interstate Five and see the traffic going by. And I was thinking, as we were enjoying this spectacular space in an urban area, uh, who and how did this magnificent feature? Uh, uh, be protected and retained in its current state. And uh, uh, it, it led us to this conversation and wanting to know more about your work at the Nisqually Land Trust. Um, tell us why the Nisqually River and the Delta is such an important part of the South Sound area. Introduce our audience, if you would, to this region. Sure. So um, the Nisqually River, um, we think it's the only river in the country that has its headwaters protected in a national park. It starts up um, Mount Rainier, um, and then it's uh, the mouth of the river is protected with a national wildlife refuge, the Billy Frank Jr. Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge. Um, so we're, we're fortunate in that both the, the headwaters and the mouth of the river are in um, under federal protection. Um, but, you know, as as Craig sort of alluded to when he was get, helping do the introduction to the South Sound, uh, especially for the mouth, that is, that's not an accident that they're, um, it's protected there. And what you saw when you were kayaking and, and the beautiful natural state um, that you witnessed, uh, that is the product of many people over many years advocating for the protection of this river that people recognize was special. Um, and so, you know, it was proposed um, originally back in the 70s to build a port, uh, develop a port in the mouth of the Nisqually River. And because people together came together in the community and said, we don't think that should happen here. We think it's important to protect the natural habitat here is why uh, that port project didn't happen. 
and why uh, then the federal government ended up um, uh, purchasing the the mouth of the river to to turn it into a refuge. So you know you were asking about how land trusts got their start uh, in this area, and so there was already a history of people working together to take care of um, the river and uh, surrounding areas. There was actually uh, the state legislature created a task force to look at the Nisqually River in particular, recognizing that it was uh, a river of significance and that it was worthwhile to uh, support a community conversation about how partners could work together to take care of the river. And so um, out of that, there was a uh, river council that was formed, the Nisqually River Council, that started meeting in the 1980s bringing together all the partners, federal, state, local, community members, businesses, to sit at the table together once a month and to talk about how everyone could work together to take care of the river and support the community. And it was out of those conversations that uh, in one of those meetings, there was a presentation that someone gave about the concept of a land trust. And one of the the key figures in this whole process um, that that needs to be named is uh, a person named Billy Frank Jr., who is who the the wildlife refuge is now named after, and he was an Nisqually tribal member and a leader of the fight for uh, indigenous tribes uh, to have their treaty rights recognized. And um, when they were successful in the courts in doing that in the 1970s, he then turned to how do I work together with people in the community in my traditional homeland, the Nisqually watershed, to take care of this watershed and take care of the salmon, which are a central part of the tribes, the Pacific Northwest, their culture, their traditions, their way of life. And um, he recognized that if we didn't actually have people working together to take care of the salmon, it didn't matter if the courts said the tribes still had a right to fish for salmon if there were no salmon to catch. And so that really uh, led to then um, the work around the River Council and then the, uh, the founding of the Nisqually Land Trust as affiliated organization of the River Council and a major focus of our work uh, over the last 30 plus years, which has been working uh, in partnership with the tribe and others on salmon recovery in in the Nisqually watershed and a real focus on protecting important uh, streams and rivers and shoreline habitat that uh, support uh, healthy salmon runs. Dave, uh, can we talk a little bit about what land trusts are, just period? Like, like what are these entities Jeanette kind of talked about how it was a new concept, kind of came in, like like out of left field. Hey, we could do this. What 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 is a land trust? How are they invented, and and how do they operate? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Jeanette and Craig did a wonderful job of, of showcasing some of the history, some of the rich history that we have in our area. And you heard Craig talk about these dedicated citizen groups, and the land trust movement was really started uh, by by individuals that wanted to see change in their communities and wanted to see lands conserved. And so it often 
Um, you know, today there's over 1,500 land trusts across the country. There's uh, over 40 land trusts here in Washington State. And uh, so many of us have the same story, um, a kind of historical founding story where there happened to be a dedicated group of volunteers that wanted to see uh, important and critical habitats in their, the, the, the areas that they live protected. And so, um, you know, land trust, the land trust movement was really um, birthed in the 1980s and um, a lot of us are going through similar and uh, unique challenges today, which which makes this conservation sector uh, something like uh, it's 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 nothing like uh, anything I've been a part of in my professional career before. Uh, just the ability to connect with other executive directors, and we're really talking about um, apples to apples comparisons, and so. You know, what are land trusts? Land trusts are private nonprofit organizations which work to preserve and protect and restore natural spaces. And so the critical piece here is that we're working with private landowners to conserve land. And there's really two main methods that um, land trusts use to protect these natural spaces. One is through acquiring the land and um, either purchasing that land outright from the landowner or in many cases, um, the generosity of landowners wanting to see their land protected, they donate uh, their land to land trust to uh, is one form. So owning the land outright. And the second form is a conservation easement. And a conservation easement is a voluntary legal agreement between the landowner and the land trust. And uh, it's a legally binding agreement uh, that protects that land in perpetuity. And it stays with that land forever. So as the uh, the original grantor decides to sell the property, that property is then sold with a conservation easement on it. And uh, land trusts have the responsibility of annually monitoring those lands. And so, um, you know, here at Capital Land Trust, we use both of those methods of conservation. And, um, you know, that 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 is a really critical piece, the the ability to work with private landowners and having uh, private landowners in our communities who are willing uh, to put their land into conservation. That is a great overview. Uh, the fee simple acquisition for all you lawyer types out there, uh, where the land trust would own outright uh, the land acquired and managed through the land trust. Uh, either by purchase or by donation, and then the development rights management through conservation easements, two tools, uh, Dave, that you laid out for our audience. Uh, land trusts around the American shoreline are very common and uh, really uh, an important component of coastal advocacy and protection. Uh, the Coastal Mountains Land Trust in Maine, the uh, the North Carolina Coastal Land Trust, the Maui, the Hawaii Land Trust. If you look around the American shoreline, you will see these organizations and entities everywhere. And they play such an important role, I believe. Uh, Jeanette, would you be so kind as to, uh, to, to help our audience and I think uh, understand the connection and the necessity of, of river watershed management as a component of coastal health? Uh, the Nisqually Land Trust, as you said, has an interest all the way up to Mount Rainier. I understand the Nisqually River is about 78 miles long from its headwaters to the Puget Sound. Uh, why is riverine protection and land management so critical in coastal health? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, for our part of the country, 
uh, I know when other folks from other parts of the country, they say, why do you focus on the salmon so much? But for us, the salmon are um, a really helpful organizing uh, principle because uh, the salmon are uh, fish that use both freshwater and then the saltwater. They are born in the freshwater, they go out into the ocean, and then they return at their end of their lives to spawn and lay their eggs and die, and the cycle continues. And the watersheds, the rivers and the watersheds in the Pacific Northwest have their ecological health has evolved uh, around the salmon. So to us, we look at the salmon as both the an indicator of the health of our river systems and also essential for the health of our river systems. There's been a lot of research that's been done looking at the impact of salmon and there's 137 different species of wildlife that have been identified that feed on salmon. Um, and then researchers have also shown how uh, when the salmon come back and they spawn and they die, those carcasses of the salmon feed the watershed and the forest, they actually are bringing nutrients back from the ocean, marine nutrients that then fertilize the surrounding forests. And um, bears and other animals that eat the salmon will drag them up into the forest. And so they're actually sort of fertilizing the forest. And scientists can actually uh, do um, coring of trees uh, and do look at the at the tree rings and do an analysis and find that marine nutrient signature in the trees where the salmon have come back. And they've they've identified that the trees grow more and are healthier where those salmon are. And so, and salmon are important to people as well. You know, they've been uh, important to the tribes of this area since time immemorial. And they also are now viewed as an icon of the Pacific Northwest. You know, one of the most visible, uh, popular uh tourist sort of things is the the fish throwing at Pike Place Market in Seattle. So to imagine this place without salmon uh, is hard, hard to imagine. And yet we do have salmon that are listed under the Endangered Species Act right now because we have seen them uh, declining, their populations declining from changes in the habitat, from past history of overharvesting from impacts from hatcheries. And so there's a whole effort now to try and work together to figure out how do we recover the salmon. And it's completely integrated with the importance of the health of these watersheds. Um, our communities are formed around the different river systems and uh, depend on those river systems and those watersheds to be healthy for our communities to be healthy. And so I actually got started in this work just because I cared about the stream that I grew up on and wanted to do something there and then realized pretty quickly if I wanted to take care of the health of my local environment and my stream, that working on salmon and salmon recovery was a pathway to do that. Because when you have healthy salmon, it's telling you that the watershed is healthy. Peter, if I might, um, also the... Uh the salmon play a role out in the local saltwater uh, of Puget Sound that's critical as well as a base of a food supply uh, food chain that includes our native orca whales uh, that are also listed now as uh, under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, and there's a huge effort in Puget Sound to uh, uh, work to recover the whale populations and a healthy salmon runs coming down from these watersheds is is critical to that. 
Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree with that perspective. Uh, the the what we're talking about here is the value of coastal estuaries, and I think uh, the listeners to the show, I think, are fairly well advised about this topic. Uh, these these interfaces are so critical biologically and in the ecosystem health and structure. Uh, the question, so the, the the notion that land trusts play a key role as nonprofit organization in the protection of uh, critical coastal lands and water resources is is well established. But Craig, you were in the Washington Department of Natural Resources for 32 years and were instrumental in the management of 2.5 million acres of submerged lands in this state. Um, the question I have for you kind of broadly as a policy question is we're talking about the difference between public sector land and resource management, Department of Ecology or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or any of the other state or federal entities involved versus this private sector nonprofit model of land and resource management. Uh, Craig, you've worked in both. Uh, you were the uh, the chairman of the board for the Capital Land Trust, the board president, uh, and also at the state agency. Can you contrast a little bit what it is about land trusts as an advantage or how are they are distinctive compared to public land management? Could you talk about that issue, public versus private management systems? You bet. That's a great, that's a great question, Peter. And I think it, 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 it's also the contrast between local and maybe uh, less local. Um, because what, uh, of course, what government agencies can do is, is they can concentrate the power of legal authority and the public purse uh, and uh, make things happen that way. Uh, what local nonprofit land trusts do uh, is much more ground up uh, and is based on local initiative local trust uh, and local financial resources. So the there are landowners uh, out there, it's not that uncommon, that uh, would not consider transacting their property, even if they had a strong conservation ethic uh, and maybe wanted to see their property conserved forever, would not consider transacting with a government agency uh, but would consider transacting with a private nonprofit entity like a land trust. <clears throat> and that we, we see that uh, numerous times. And so uh, the, 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 the other thing, uh, the land trusts have a, a strong local reputation in their communities from the work that they do interacting with the communities uh, in hands-on conservation on the lands that are particularly the the owned land, the fee-owned lands, but also with landowner permission on on the conservation easements, but there is a lot of volunteer work that goes on to carry out conservation work. Uh, land trusts are increasingly uh, venturing into opening their uh, some of their property up to uh, public access, uh, careful public access. Uh, and I'm sure Dave can talk at length about that as, as well as Jeanette. Uh, so the, that local reputation uh, for being well integrated into the community and understanding the needs of landowners, I think sets 
land trusts apart from public se sector entities in the role we play for uh, conserving these shoreline areas. And I just want to jump in here, you know, uh, Peter, when we were doing our pre-show talk today, I was on a hiking trail that is on Ojai Land Conservancy land. The trail was built by volunteers. It is maintained by volunteers, of which I am one. It's like a whole scene. It's a community of people, and that that I'm now that I live back here, I'm like I have become a part of by virtue of utilizing the public access component in the in the hike. The you know being able to hike these trails for free. By the way, I don't have to pay anything. It's amazing, and then also by doing these volunteer events, which are super fun, super fun. I of course, Peter, you know me. Give me a shovel, and I'm a happy guy. I just like to dig, but uh, <laughs> yes, you do. I do. I enjoy a hole. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you you spend a bunch of time outside with with these great people who also enjoy digging holes, and then go and have have a couple beers afterwards and a big pile of nachos, and that is really living. Let me tell you, that is an amazing way to commit connect uh, with the land and with your trails and with your fellow community members. So it really is a kind of a magical. Uh, nexus point. And uh, yeah, Craig, would you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I know it from the perspective of like a community member here in Ojai, but what is it, you know, when you're from an organizational perspective, uh, how does the public, uh, you know, because there is this mission of like, you know, acquiring land, acquiring the easements, that that's where the money should go to. And then there's this other side of the shop, which is community engagement, bringing people in, education, et cetera. How, how do you view that balance? That's absolutely at the core of land trusts around the country right now. And I know uh, Dave and Jeanette will both be able to address this as well. Uh, it's the, the, the history is in the land protection and the future is in the community engagement. Uh, and the because we don't feel that we will have a strong enough uh, foundation of support for the perpetual conservation of these protected areas without that community connection. And land trusts are in the uh, perpetuity business. We own these lands forever. And um, we need to have uh, community support and we want to, we're motivated to, to invite people um, like you down in your area uh, to come on some of our, uh, our particularly appropriate uh, uh, ownerships and gain the benefit from walking around and seeing the magic and, and rolling up sleeves as well. Uh, I, I think, uh, I'm sure Dave uh, can talk uh, in in detail about that as well as Jeanette. Yeah, let's I would love to hear Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I'm eager to jump in here because Tyler your um description of your experience today and what what you what you felt and 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 the emotions and kind of your experience and what um got you excited. It just that's that's been the shift as Craig described in the land trust movement. You know, it used to be about conserving land, locking it up, not allowing anyone ever to go there. 
Um, but this term community conservation is something that the land trust movement has been using for the last 10 years or so. And Tyler, what you described is exactly that community conservation, the opportunity to open up these lands for people to come have hands-on experiences, uh, to give back by volunteering and helping uh, co-manage and steward these properties. Um, and, and then Jeanette talked about how she got involved in this work in the first place, which was her own personal experience in her own backyard and uh, on lands close to her home. And, you know, that's critical. Uh, we talk a lot of, at Capital Land Trust about inspiring the next generation of conservation leaders. And, and my story is not much different than Jeanette's. Um, I'm living in the community where I was born and raised. Um, I moved away for about 20 plus years, lived in Colorado in a landlocked state for 12 of those years. And what I missed was uh, all of the, the wonderful ecosystems uh, and the geography that we have in this region around the Puget Sound, uh, the, the salt water, the, um, you know, the fresh water. Uh, all of that was just so critical to my upbringing. And, and Jeanette did a wonderful job of describing uh, the power of conserving coastal lands around here and the community benefit. But this idea of getting our community engaged in our work, um, building that connection, because if you don't have that connection, you're less likely um, to want to conserve it uh, down the line. So it's a really critical piece and a big part of, of land trust missions today. Yeah, just just to add to that, I think what both Craig and Dave said is great. Um, but, uh, you know, people tend to get really excited about when we as land trusts, we get to announce that we've conserved a new piece of property. And that is always the first step um, to the two tools that Dave described. But um, but as Craig was saying, this is the perpetuity business. That's actually, ironically, the easy part, uh, although sometimes it doesn't seem easy at the time. But then we've made a commitment as an organization to take care of that property in perpetuity in the community. And so the community engagement part becomes key because we're not going to be able to do this by ourselves. We have to have the community support and engagement um, to just, you know, to monitor these properties, to do the work, to take care of them. Some of them need restoration. Um, and so to have people who can connect with these lands, who have the opportunity to understand why they're of value, to fall in love with them, and to then be inspired enough that they want to help us take care of these places, these special places, that is key to our future success. And so, and that it's a multi-generational effort um, because, you know, we're, we're going to need to create a system where we can keep handing off that commitment to the next generation. And so that's, that's the era that we are looking at, even as we continue to try and secure other properties that we know are important for protection. Um, you know, with Nisqually Land Trust, in our 30 plus years of time that we've been working on this, we've helped working with our partners to conserve a little over 10,000 acres. Some of those we've passed on to our partners with that conservation overlay, but we have a little over 6,000 acres so far that we are accountable for stewarding and taking care of, and that's not a small amount of land. Um, so, so that is really important for people to understand uh, with land trust is that having the community support and engagement 
uh, is critical to our long-term success and keeping, you know, true to our commitment. Very, very helpful, Jeanette. Uh, Dave, would you just, Jeanette mentioned 6,000 acres currently under uh, management by the Nisqually Land Trust. What about the Capital Land Trust? Tell us about your holdings, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so we were founded in 1987, and we were all volunteer run until 1999 and hired our first executive director that year. And and over that history, that 30-plus year history, we have um, conserved 99 properties. So we're coming up on that that fabulous 100 mark there, um, and, and today have uh, 6,500 acres under our management, and that includes about 19 miles of Puget Sound shoreline. So this is, uh, Jeanette, you, you raised a question that was on my mind, a perspective that is the, the ongoing management of lands that are acquired by land trusts. Um, you know, this is a private, se- this is a private sector entity. It is a nonprofit organization. Of course, it's subject to certain requirements from the IRS and, and probably under state law as well. Uh, but obviously it's not free to manage these uh, lands. And uh, I wanted to learn a little bit more, uh, Jeanette, first from you and then from Dave, uh, how you manage these properties. What are the priorities, the management priorities? How are those established and uh, how durable uh, are they? Jeanette, you first. Okay. Uh well, let's see. How long is this podcast? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and how about a multi-part question with eight parts to it? But basically, I want to know about the land management in, part in, of it. In a nutshell. Um, so we actually, there's a, a national organization, the Land Trust Alliance, that has set standards and practices that we all, um, uh, you know, land trusts, um, if we want to be recognized as um you know, trustworthy land trusts, we try to follow. And there are standards for what we do to manage these properties once we acquire them. And so like some of the most basic things is being able to monitor them at least once a year and make sure that they are um, still intact, that there isn't encroachment issues, um, what issues do we need to deal with. And then beyond that, it it depends on the focus of of the land trust and the needs of that particular property. So we we write a management plan for each one of our properties after we acquire it. And um, for us, because I've been talking a lot about our particular focus for a lot of the properties we acquire is salmon and salmon recovery we are looking at the objectives that are in the salmon recovery plan for the Nisqually watershed that was developed by the tribe with partners that helps us understand what it is that we need to do with each of those properties. So some of the properties we acquire already have healthy, intact, forested uh, you know, shorelines along the Nisqually River. And that's a, a little bit simpler for us. We just need to take care of them and make sure that they don't get damaged over time by unauthorized, you know, um, encroachment or that kind of thing. Um, there's other properties that were identified in the recovery strategy as in need of restoration. And that's a lot more hands-on where we partner with the tribe and other nonprofits that do um, stream restoration. And we're doing pretty active restoration projects on these properties our purchasing the properties makes the, the the properties available for these key restoration projects. But then we have to continually look at um, how we're maintaining those and, um, 
you know, it, restoration is not a one and done thing. It's adaptive management. You have to keep monitoring it to make sure that it's functioning the way that you intended. And a lot of it is dealing with the plants as well. So invasive plants that are not native to the area that uh, can uh, damage the native ecosystem, you know, trying to find ways to, to get folks to help us to remove those and then doing plantings of native plants where we need to restore the native plant community. So it's, we sort of have this big picture of understanding this is the type of habitat that we are trying to protect and restore throughout the Nisqually watershed and each individual property we look specifically at what is the condition of that property and what is what is its importance in the overall recovery strategy and that helps then guide our specific management actions for that particular property very helpful uh thank you very much dave i'd like to ask you to speak to the issue of of the management of the properties and as an executive director of the trust I'm really kind of put this in a, a little bit different way uh, of the time of uh, that you spend. What percentage of the time are you thinking about acquisitions and what percentage of the time are you concerned about and uh, and working on on management of the portfolio that you have? What is the what's the balance between acquisition and management? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think Jeanette uh, stated that really well earlier. The acquisition part of it often is the easiest piece and, and the management, uh, property management, habitat enhancement, restoration, uh, and managing for whatever the intended uses of that conserved property are, uh, is a significant, that's where the work, that's where the rubber meets the road. And, um, you know, so we are very strategic organizations. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, it requires a willing landowner often um, to to acquire uh, the land outright, a fee title, or to put a conservation easement on the property. And so even though we're very strategic uh, on the acquisition side, it, there's a lot of uh, opportunistic uh, nature of that work to be able to, uh, you get a willing landowner who's ready and interested. Uh, it's it's strike while the iron's hot and and build that relationship and try to make that project work. So, you know, I think we're, we're very um, acquisition focused. That's the work that's in front of us today. But as we continue to acquire more land, I would say the, ma the management of those lands um, is the kinds of things that keep you up at night and, and keep you thinking about how to do that with limited resources that we have in terms of staff capacity or, um, you know, volunteer expertise or uh, financial resources that are available uh, to manage those lands in the most responsible way. Um, but I would say that uh, both Nisqually and Capital Land Trust were accredited land trust. Uh, Jeanette mentioned the Land Trust Alliance. Um, collaboration is a key part of the work that we do, both on the acquisition side and the property management. And, and so we lean on our community partners uh, on both sides there to, to make sure that we're successfully accomplishing our missions. And, you know, Peter, this is, this is an area where that uh, uh, distinction or the comparison between private and public conservation comes in as well, because land trusts uh, although they're competing for public grants of funding to do some of this work, uh, they also are relying on that volunteer pool, uh, including school kids. And 
you're, you're probably more likely to find a class of school kids uh, out uh, with their sleeves rolled up digging uh, in the dirt to do actual ecologically uh, valid restoration work on a land trust property than you are in the local city park. Um, and so land trust uh, ownership by that private nature of it um, can be welcoming to the community, including schools, um, for some of that land necessary land management work in perpetuity that sets us apart uh, to some degree from the from the publicly conserved areas you know i, I want to jump in on this because uh i i think i think this is one of the coolest and maybe most you know if i dare say most important roles particularly if we think about like management going forward so, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to direct this to, uh, Dave and Jeanette. And I, if there's no, if, if you can't think of anything, it's no big deal, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to use an example. So here in Southern California, uh, we're prone to like really gnarly forest fires. Everybody knows that. And Ojai suffered a really bad, the Thomas fire 2018, just really encircled the lands. Many of the land conservancy lands were just totally scorched and, in the aftermath of the fire, there's been just this cascade of, you know, social and political things to address the risk of fire. And one of the more avant-garde uh, ideas from a land management perspective is controlled burns. Like fire is a natural part of the landscape in Southern California. And if we prevent fire from burning for 30 years, we're going to have an inferno on our hands. It's inevitable. And so perhaps we could get ahead of it. There's a whole lot of research here, uh, but it's super avant-garde. And the Land Conservancy has been able to do pilot projects on their land and study it and you, in, and in partnership with other entities in the area that study wildfire and, and protecting people from fire. And I'm wondering, and I'll start with Jeanette, is there something similar to that that, that you are working on as a, as a land trust uh, where you are where you are would be say on the on the forefront of some new uh, innovation in coastal land management. You know, we haven't tried any controlled burns on our property, although there are people in our area that are working on restoration of the um, historic grasslands that were um, originally found much more commonly in the South Puget Sound area and that were maintained by the tribes by uh, the, by controlled burns. Uh, that was historically what they did, and that land management changed, obviously, when non-tribal folks settled. Um, but because our focus has been more um, protecting river shorelines up to this point, um, that hasn't made sense for us to have something like controlled burns. However, in the upper part of the Nisqually watershed, in the foothills um, just outside of um, Mount Rainier, National Park and also the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, there are some private uh, forest lands that were working for us that uh, we started an initiative about 15 years back to start working to uh, buy those uh, working forests from the kind of international timber companies that uh, have been uh, managing those for kind of investment um priorities and convert the management of those working forests. Uh, so it's still supporting the local community, but we are um, 
making decisions based more on the the local ecosystem uh, needs and the needs of the of the downstream um, uh, system. And so, uh, working in partnership, uh, so we created a subsidiary organization actually that's called the Nisqually Community Forest. And uh, that's another partnership with the Nisqually tribe. Um, and uh, the tribe just purchased an additional um, 12, uh, just a little over 1,200 acres um, just earlier this summer. In total, the community forest with the tribal ownership and the, and the land the land trust purchased and then gave to our subsidiary, we have about 5,500 acres of, of forest that um, we are managing as working forest with our partners. Um, uh, we work with a nonprofit called the Northwest Natural Resources Group that specializes in sustainable forestry. And so we have um, prescriptions for doing thinnings. Um, these are very uh, overstocked, um, high density plantation sort of forests that need a lot of thinning for forest health and also to allow them to then mature and start developing more kind of old growth forest characteristics that both provide better forest habitat, um, but also can help improve stream flows in the system. And so we're not going through and doing um, burning in the understory of these forests, but we are trying to do a lot of thinning um, to allow the forest to regain some of that resilience and um, and and restore that forest health. So that's probably the the closest thing that I can think of in terms of your example. Yeah, and Tyler, I think well, I think your question again highlights uh, the uniqueness of a private nonprofit doing land conservation and, and the land trust movement, and in the land trust um, ability in your community and communities across the country. Uh, there's a certain amount of nimbleness that we have as a, as a land trust that allows us to see where there are um, changing weather patterns or there's a community need and then be able to ask the question, how, how can we be part of or be at the table in helping trying to solve that community need? And, you know, here in our region, in the South Puget Sound, we are ex experiencing pretty significant um shifts and weather patterns. You know, we're coming out of an extremely dry uh, summer um, to this first week of real rain. And it's like the, the light switch has been turned on and we've had several days of rain. But, you know, um, Craig pointed this out earlier as well, that ability to work with higher ed institutions and work with students that are involved in research projects and um, working with local tribes who are really focused on uh, responding to our climate challenge today and looking at our conserved lands as ways to look for trends and look at ways that uh, land conservation and other nat natural climate solutions can help mitigate those impacts and effects of changing weather patterns by um, preserving the forests and the prairies that can help uh, uh, absorb that stormwater runoff, um, counter flooding, wildfire, wildfires, um, do carbon capture, and really provide shade uh, to cool rivers, streams, estuaries, and shorelines is is just something that land trusts are uniquely positioned to be able to respond to in real time. Um, and I think your example of your local land trust is is one of many across the country uh, that showcases uh, that ability. Very, very interesting. Um... So I get the feeling these land trusts are pretty special. I had uh, uh, learned a lot in the conversation. Uh, innovative, nimble, 
community-based, lots of education opportunities, engagement and partnerships are all of the attributes that you guys are uh, describing for our listeners. Uh, pretty tremendous. Uh, but let's talk about money because none of this is cheap, uh, particularly in an area like the Pacific Northwest uh, and other parts. Actually, this is true, Tyler, all around the country. Land in coastal regions of, of America are extremely expensive. Uh, these are high dollar uh, uh, tasks that the land trusts are taking on, not only in the acquisition and the management. So, Jeanette, I'm going to start with you. How do you fund your operations and where do you go uh, for the core resources that you utilize? Yeah. So it's, it's sort of that contrast again of the difference between the initial acquisition and then the commitment to maintain and steward those properties after we acquire them. For the acquisition, our land trust is uh, mostly goes uh, for government grants um, to um, secure the funding for uh, acquiring those properties. And it's a combination of federal, state, and local government grants. Um, the biggest funding source for us uh, over the history of our organization has been uh, the salmon recovery funds that come from both the federal and the state government, because that has been a major focus of the types of habitat lands we're trying to protect. And when the Pacific Coastal Salmon Recovery Fund was created back in the, um, 1999, that's when things really accelerated for our land trust in terms of how much land we were acquiring each year, because suddenly there was this new grant source that was available where this was um, a priority um, action for that for for the um for that uh, grant organization and so um so grant funds are critical for us to have the funding to be able to acquire the properties for maintaining the properties for stewardship sometimes we can get a, a little bit of grant funds for like if there's a key restoration project that we've identified also so that initial work to do the initial restoration then there might be grant funds that are available for that. But for the long-term stewardship of the properties, we're dependent on private donations. And that's where um, we are really fortunate in that we have some very great, generous people in our community who care deeply about our work and our lands and who help support um, our time to go out and check on the properties to take care of them. And then the volunteers that come out to help us with, you know, specific maintenance needs. But that is an area, you know, as we grow and mature and as we add more property, it's one of the biggest things that I would say probably Dave would agree that keeps us up at night is how do we find enough funds to actually be able to take care of these properties long-term because there is no good grant source out there that says, here, we're going to give you a perpetual fund uh, to um, check on these properties in perpetuity. Um, so, so we have to come up with, with other ways of, of finding the funding to do that. Um, we, we have created, um, our board in the last year did create uh, a set aside for the beginning of sort of an endowment type of fund for long-term stewardship, but it's going to be a long time before we can build that up to the point where we could count on that as a regular source uh, of funding for the work that we do. 
Interesting. Dave, uh, what's your comment on on the financial challenges of acquisition and management? How does the Capital Land Trust approach that? Yeah, uh, it's well said, Jeanette. It's really no different uh, than how Jeanette just described it. You know, I think that um, we both uh, both organizations carefully assess and select properties for conservation that deliver the greatest environmental and ecological benefits for every dollar that are invested. We have to be uh, very strategic. We have to prioritize. We're often um, having to make some difficult decisions, but we've had the good fortune of um, applying for state, federal, and uh, local county grants and put good projects forward. And we've had the support. Um, I think at Capital Land Trust, our nonpartisan approach has helped um, draw that support from policymakers and and the local industry uh, and those federal and state agencies. So that's been a major help. And then, you know, as our organization matures, uh, Jeanette mentioned how critical individual contributions and from community members is to the overall operating and, and long-term success uh, to this commitment that we've made in perpetuity to manage these lands. Um, you know, we're starting to see, and I know Nisqually is as well, these legacy gifts where donors are leaving behind um, bequests to help us achieve our mission. And um, those have been very significant in our history and helping us uh, continue to evolve and grow and, and, and better uh, manage and, and acquire uh, new land. So that's a, that's a critical element as well. Well, if uh, the folks out there around the country take a look at NisqualiLandTrust.org, the Nisqually Land Trust uh, Executive Director Jeanette uh, Dorner uh, on the show today, and the CapitalLandTrust.org is uh, uh, Dave's organization, the Capital Land Trust here in Olympia, Washington. And I would encourage folks out there uh, around the American shoreline to take a look locally at your land trust. There is most likely a land trust in your bay or estuary or along your shoreline. They're common. They're critical organizations. They play an instrumental role in coastal environmental protection and health and restoration. Uh, so we really appreciate that. Uh, I mean, Jeanette, I'd like to get your final thoughts and then Dave, your final thoughts, and we'll wrap up with Craig. Uh, Jeanette, final thoughts from you. I just really appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about what we do. You know, you helping us get the word out to folks. We don't want uh, the work that we do as a land trust to be a secret because we won't be successful if we don't have people in the community that know about what we do and care about it enough that they want to support our work. So just really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share a little bit about that today along with uh, Craig and Dave. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Peter and Tyler. This was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, it, it is awesome to be able to connect with more people and, and share uh, kind of some of the history of our region, but also about what land trusts are doing across the country. And I highly encourage your listeners to check out and see what's going on uh, with your local land trust. You can also go to the Land Trust Alliance website and find a land trust in your area. Um, and I think, you know, here at Capital Land Trust, our tagline is connecting people and conserving land. And my guess is that your local land trust is doing similar work and there's lots of opportunities for you to get involved locally. Super good. Thank you very much. And I want to thank Craig Partridge uh, for working with us to put this show together. Uh, Craig, final thoughts from you, please. 
So I mentioned earlier that uh, land trusts are in the perpetuity business. Another way of saying that, I think, to, to cap it is uh, we're in the hope business because we're we're restoring ecosystems for the future. Uh, it's all uh, aimed at the, the future of conservation in our communities. And that's all about restoring hope. Uh, and we all know that uh, our communities need more of that these days. So your listeners uh, uh, have that same opportunity to work on restoring hope in their communities uh, through land trust. Beautifully said, Craig. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Craig Partridge. He is the former board president of the Capital Land Trust and one of the instrumental managers of the state of Washington submerged lands. Uh, Jeanette Dornan, who is the executive director of the Nisqually Land Trust, and Dave Winter, the executive director of the Capital Land Trust. Thank you all very much for introducing our listeners around the country to land trusts and coastal land trusts in particular. We really appreciate it and uh, look forward to learning more about what your organizations are doing in this region. Thank you so much for your time. Birds on the lawn, sun, light, dawn, singing, mama,